Hello, everybody, and welcome to Failing Forward. I'm here today with Kalkidan Laikyu, who's going to be talking about women respond and why our surveys should not be a burden and how we change the way we think about surveying women. Welcome to Failing Forward. Cal, can you please introduce yourself for our audience today? Uh, thank you, Emily. My name is Kalkidan Lako, and I'm currently the coordinator for Women Respond, part of the global VSLA team based in Ethiopia. Tell us a little bit about Women Respond. Women Respond is an initiative that CARE started somewhere around April 2020. With the start of the pandemic, there was a huge need to get information and data from the various communities that we work in. And CARE used the rapid general analysis that we've used in you know, different uh, emergency and humanitarian settings. But this time we were you know, listening to women and collecting data in different parts of the world at the same time. So that kind of brought in the Women Respond initiative and helped us to map the different data we're having from different countries under three broader themes and focusing on what is the major impact of the pandemic on women and different communities that we work in, how are they coping and responding, like action they're taking and what their priority needs are. And that actually was designed in a way to support our intervention to be reshaped, to serve the community better but also to provide data and make findings available both at the community and different partners level so that they can use it in their own activities and initiative and leadership and so on. How is that different than the way this has been done in the past? The first thing is the COVID context itself was different. A lot of us, we used to travel, we used to be in the front of like the, the listening and the data collection process. But with the lockdown, it brought in like a new way of doing things. We were no longer in the location, right? So this understanding that the communities themselves are there, you know, dealing with the problem and they should be the one like leading the process. So a lot of the, particularly at the initial year, the first year of the pandemic, a lot of the data collection were happening remotely. And that, that was a new thing and it was a new learning. But also because we're a bit limited in terms of our engagement, it's also taking back the data and findings back to the women so that they can use it in their own context, in their own leadership is what makes it very unique. And this is also because of the restriction, because we're not there. It was an effort to reduce the gap. I think the other piece of it is having the findings available online for the different stakeholders that could access it that way. If I'm not mistaken, we're probably the, the first one to make those data available publicly. What I'm hearing you say is that some of the things that are unique about it are lifting up women's voices directly and doing it very quickly, getting data back to women leaders so that they can do something about it in their communities. And then really thinking about women's leadership and, and what did that look like in the context of the pandemic? All of those are great things. Were they easy? Did it all work the first time? We were learning from the process. That's how the entire process was shaped. So as we listen to the women, bring in the data, and when we take it back, they usually you know, have feedbacks and comments, not just about the finding, but also the process. It was like a regular process for us to not to see ourselves just like an expert, but also as a full learner throughout the process. So it wasn't easy. The remote process makes it a bit difficult. And we know because of the gender digital divide, women might not necessarily be safe to use their phone at their houses or might be you know, having access and so on. 
So there was a lot of challenges in terms of getting the findings and also making sure that the community have access to it, particularly in countries where the, you know, the restriction was more tight. As things open up, it was much easier to, to connect with communities and listen and come back and adapt it. But that makes it difficult. The other piece is because we always wanted to understand impact. We constantly have to like reshape, uh, you know, the way we use the findings to show women's leadership because they were taking action in their own context and they, they were leading, mobilizing different changes. And they were very, you know, integral part of preventing the pandemic, but they were not in the decision-making process as well. Uh, so being able to tell those stories while we're talking about impact, but without distorting their leadership and their key role through the crisis was something that we continuously have to remind ourselves. So it wasn't always easy, but as long as you made it a learning process, there's always, I think, the room for improvement. One of the stories I remember from the beginning is that we were doing remote surveys that were interactive voice response, and we really had to change how we were thinking about that. Can you tell a little more about that story? Interactive voice response was a very easy way to continue to listen to people remotely, right? That was (laughs) the basic assumption. But at the same time, when we, in countries like Nigeria, Uganda, where we've done this, often people would say like, oh no, the the question is a bit long, or when the translation is happening because professional translators making it, the local language might not necessarily be clear. And we also are having a very low response rate in some of the country offices. We decided to shift some of the way we do things. So one was particularly Uganda, we really shortened, we had like 12 questions. So one of the things we understood was if it's more than 10 to 15 minutes, nobody would actually, you know, sit down and finish the survey. So shortening it was much easier. So some of the questions, we ended up rotating it in the different surveys instead of packing all 12, 15 questions in one survey. The other piece is starting from, I think, the second round, we decided to add incentives by providing like airtime gifts if people, you know, complete the survey. So that was really interesting because people said like, oh, no, no, that's good. I'm, you know, committing my time. So this is actually like a really good, I wouldn't say compensation because we, we call it gift, but they say like, this is a compensation for my time. So it was really interesting to see that. The other piece is people really appreciated that when they told us like, this is how you should say it in the local language. And then we up, you know, updated the, the recording within the IVR that actually created a sense of ownership and that their feedback is being used to adapt the tools and the questions. And some like the Nigeria case, we couldn't continue because for months we tried the IVR survey and we were not getting adequate responses. So when we switched later on to a phone survey, people were more responsive just to talk to a person one-to-one. So some of it is around access uh, phone. Other times people want that, you know, human interaction. Uh, So a combination of both was great. If somebody from care side or partner side actually called them before the IBR went out and talked to them about the survey, we were more likely to get responses as well. The other thing people said was like, if the survey is long, uh, that their phone might heat up, you know, depending on the kind of phone they have. And often in places where like, electricity is a challenge, they might not have enough charge and then they have to go to like the town to charge their phone and so on. So, you know, limiting the question, making it easy and direct, it was more efficient for the survey to continue. Of course, we really wanted like detailed responses and so on, but just understanding that the digital limitation 
and adapting to it. It, it responds to what they need and the kind, you know, respond to the kind of device they have at hand. One of the things I find so fascinating about that is the idea that in the pre-COVID world, a 15-question survey would have been considered lightning fast, very short, very to the point, almost too short in a lot of research. In COVID, it became very obvious that women were valuing their own time and they would just hang up if there wasn't someone sitting in the space with them. When they were done, they would just hang up the phone. And how that makes us think differently about well, how much time is it okay to take when you're doing research? How much time do these women really want to be giving? And that idea that we were compensating them because we were taking away their time. We did a blog of, I think, a year back. And we put that like as a suggestion. Whenever it's possible, it's really good to incentivize because time is a very important asset, right? And that's something that women is challenged with, particularly during COVID. So if you're doing a lot of the housework, if you're taking care of people in the household, because a lot of people are sitting at home, you know, you have to cook, you have to clean, you have to, you know, look after everyone. And at the same time, you're stressed about all the financial situation or the pandemic, basically, and your family's health. On top of that, like our survey should not be a burden. But we do recognize that the quantitative particularly was very limited. And the way we later mitigated that is we had a follow-up qualitative interview uh, with sample of people selected from the quantitative respondents. And that actually bringing a lot of like the detail and the stories. And we did case stories of women because that, that is the one that brings um, like a, a more holistic view of what they're dealing with because the quantitative usually give us like a snapshot of what is going on the human aspect of how they're, you know, dealing with uh, the pandemic, but also other crises in their context, you know, their feelings and so on are mostly captured through the qualitative work. Something else you talked about is that it's not just about does a woman have a phone or doesn't she have a phone? It's about can she afford airtime? Can she charge the phone? How long can she spend talking on the phone? Is there anything else that we learned about the digital divide that's more than whether or not you have a device? With the airtime, we really made sure that even when they call back, if they miss the IVR call and they call us back, we made sure like it's free. Uh, but the other piece and something that we were really worried about is even if she has a device, is she safe like to stay on that device and to talk to somebody on the other line, be it the digital survey or somebody from care or partner office talking to them directly? Because it can create a bit of attention depending on the kind of relationship they have in the household, which we are not aware of. So when we made calls, we asked it a few things around, what time do you want to receive a call? Is there anybody in their household that we need to describe the objective of the research for? We do need like to respect women agencies and they're the one who are giving consent to take part in the research or not. But providing that like supportive role to say, if you have any family members that need explanation about what this research is, where the data goes, how we're going to use the data, we're available. And then when they choose the time to get a call, the country team had like a spreadsheet with, you know, the code for the participant and the time when she wants to receive the call. And the call is only going out at that time specifically. And then the additional thing is we made sure that like, at least we should not ask any question that is very sensitive. So around question around GBV, 
were um, strategically avoided. There was like, a, you know, an organizational and a personal interest to know more about that because we know like women were not feeling safe at home. But at the same time, because we're not there and we, because we cannot provide additional uh, services right after that. And because for people who talk about traumatic situation, we need to be able to have some kind of referral systems. And we didn't have that in place. So in a situation where we didn't have that, and then those questions were more focused around like community safety and security and instead of like personal experiences. A lot of what you're describing is about putting power back in the hands of the women. They can hang up the phone when they're done answering questions. They can say, I want you to talk to someone else in my family right now. I want you to call it a time that is better for me. For our next episode, we're going to talk about other ways to put power back in women's hands by putting data back in women's hands and supporting what they do next. For our audience today, thank you so much for listening. Stay tuned for the next Failing Forward.